This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2016. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. So let's turn in the Word of God this morning to uh, Gospel of John, chapter 2. John's Gospel, second chapter. And reading from verse 1. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of the purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. And Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. Then the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from. But the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. He said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. When the ordinary is touched by God, it becomes extraordinary. When the ordinary is touched by God, it becomes extraordinary. Water is turned into wine. Bread and fishes multiply. Empty nets are amazingly filled with fish. The widow's pots are miraculously filled with oil. The meal in the barrel doesn't run out, and out of the flinty rock flows life-giving water. A life that is touched by God is immeasurably changed. When the ordinary is touched by God, it becomes extraordinary. Jesus turned the water into wine. We saw it was the best wine. It was the sweetest wine. It was the richest wine. We know that the law of physics cannot explain that. Botanist has no answer to that. It was a divine happening. It was a God thing. When the ordinary is touched by God, it becomes extraordinary. Think of David for a moment. Put a harp in the young man's hand, and he becomes the sweet psalmist of Israel. Put a slingshot in his hand, and he becomes a giant killer. Let him look after his father's sheep in the pasture, and he becomes the great shepherd king of all Israel. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, thinking about this incident, Whenever Samuel is mourning Saul, now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I've rejected him from reigning over Israel? 
Fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. So Samuel did as the Lord had said and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? He said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And so it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as a man sees. For the the man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah to pass by, and he says, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons to pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? He said, There remains yet the youngest, and there he is, keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, with bright eyes, and good-looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. Note this. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. Just an ordinary young shepherd boy. Though when the hand of God came upon him, he was extraordinary. God used him in a mighty, mighty way. Shamgar in Judges 3 was one of the judges of Israel. And in 331, this is what it says. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he delivered Israel. Shamgar was a simple, ordinary farmer. The tools of the trade were in his hand. He was not trained as a soldier, untrained for war, no weapons of war in his hand. But God touched him. And when God touched him, the ordinary became extraordinary. And he killed 600 men with an ox goat, not a spear or a sword, but a sharp pointed stick of all things. But you see, when the Spirit of God came on him, then he was very, very different. Amos was one of the, what's called the 12 minor prophets. Now, prophets in those days were different. Uh, Different in that some were miracle-working prophets. Uh, You can think of Elijah and Elisha. Uh, Somebody said that Elijah and Elisha uh, pointed men to God through God's works. But Amos and some of the minor prophets, they pointed men to God through God's word. And some of the prophets 
were writing prophets. All of them were speaking prophets, but some were writing prophets. And Amos was a writing prophet. Why would they write? Well, because Israel and Judah would go into captivity. And the writings of the prophets they would take with them. And it would remind them why they went into captivity. In the case of Judah, it would remind them that they were going to come out of captivity whenever they would search what God had spoken that was written down for them. And so Amos was a prophet from Judah. This was the time of the divided kingdom. Israel was the ten kingdoms, the ten tribes of the north, and Judah was the two tribes in the south. And in the north, Jeroboam was the king, and he was a wicked king. And you have to remember at this time that both Israel and Judah, they had rest around about from all of their enemies. They had subdued their enemies, and the nation was prosperous. But in their prosperity, they became very, very proud, and they left the Lord, and they worshipped idols and false gods. And Jeroboam set up golden calves in Bethel, which is the house of God. That's what Bethel means. And Dan in the north and in the south. And people would go and worship at these golden calves, these idols that couldn't speak or couldn't do anything. Uh, and God had a, uh, had a contention with them because of that. And he warned them and warned them and warned them about it, that he was going to take action, but they did not hear the word of the Lord. And what they didn't know was that there was a great nation that had arisen called Assyria, and Assyrians were cruel, barbaric people. Uh, and, and they were imperialist, expansionist, land grabbers. Uh, they would conquer lands. And when they conquered lands, they would disperse the, the local population or kill them or take them into captivity or make them slaves. And they were wickedly cruel. They were evil, wicked people. And they were raised up at this time, and God was warning, going to, he sent the prophet Amos from the south, from Judah to the north, to Israel, to warn this king and to warn the people that if you do not get your act together, if you do not repent, if you do not tear down these idols, then the Assyrians will come in, and they'll destroy you. And Amos was called by God to go and to give this message, and not an easy message. Prophets had a difficult time in those days because most people didn't want to hear what they had to say, especially if it was rebuke. And if I can just read a little bit uh, from Amos, you don't need to turn to this, but I'm going to read from Amos chapter 7. Thus the Lord showed me, behold, he formed locust swarms at the beginning of the late crop. Indeed, it was the late crop after the king's mowings. Uh, this particular king, uh, the, the, the first mowings of the crops he took for himself, like taxes. And then whatever mowings come after that was for the people to live on. Thus the Lord showed me, behold, he formed locust swarms at the beginning of the late crop. Indeed, it was the late crop after the king's mowings. And so it was when they had finished eating the grass of the land that I said, O Lord God, forgive, I pray, O that Jacob may stand, for he is small, so that the Lord relented concerning this, it shall not be, said the Lord. So here's this prophet getting a vision of what was going to happen, first of all, with these locusts coming, and he, and he pleaded for the nation. And he says, Lord, I ask you, I beg you, don't let this happen. And God says, okay, 
I'll not let that happen. And then it goes on. Thus the Lord showed me. Behold, the Lord called for conflict by fire, and it consumed the great deep and devoured the territory. Then I said, O Lord God, cease, I pray, O that Jacob may stand, for he is small. So the Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. So there's two occasions when Amos stood and pleaded with the Lord to spare the nation, and he says, Okay, I will not do this. But look what happens next. And thus he showed me, behold, the Lord stood on a wall made with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And he said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not pass by them anymore. The high places of Isaac shall be desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise with the sword against the house of Jeroboam. So he gets this vision of the Lord standing with a plumb line in his hand. The plumb line represents the word of God. God will judge by his word. And he's measuring with the plumb line how they measure against the integrity of God's word. I wonder if God was to hold a plumb line over Stormont or over Westminster or Holyrood or Doyle Aaron. I wonder would it measure up to God's word. I wonder if laws that are being passed today would measure to the plumb line of God's word. I don't think so. I don't think so in a lot of cases. And so God had relented twice, but he's not going to relent the third time. And so he speaks this prophecy. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words, for thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall surely be led away captive from their own land. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Go, you seer, flee to the land of Judah. In other words, get back from where you came. There eat bread and there prophesy. Do your prophecies down there. Don't bother us. We're okay. Leave us alone. But never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a royal residence. And then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, now listen to this. I was no prophet, nor was I the son of a prophet, but I was a sheep breeder and a tender of sycamore fruit. Then the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and he said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore hear the word of the Lord. You say, Do not prophesy against Israel, and do not spout against the house of Isaac. Therefore thus saith the Lord, Your wife shall be a harlot in the city. Your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword. Your land shall be divided by survey line, and you shall die in a defiled land, and Israel shall surely be led away captive from his own land. So here is an ordinary sheep herder, gatherer of sycamore fruit, living in Tekoa, is where he came from, in a little backwater town in the south in Judah, and God raises him up. He had no theological training. He had never been to the 
the Bible skills at that time that Samuel had raised up, that Elijah and Elisha had kept going. He hadn't been to any of those. And yet God raised him up to go to the king of Israel and warn him what was to come. And of course they laughed him out of court and they chased him away. But God's word had spoken and everything Amos said came true. The Assyrians came and they scattered the ten nation, ten tribe of Israel, and they're scattered to this very day among the nations. Now, thank God, God is bringing them back from around the world, from around the nations. But after thousands of years, they had been scattered among the nations. Judah was spared for the time being, but the Babylonians would come in later and take Judah captive, but only for 70 years, and then they returned. Why am I saying this? Because here are just ordinary people. But when God touches them, they become extraordinary. And they do extraordinary things simply because the hand of God touched them. William Carey was a cobbler. He wasn't a shoemaker, he was a shoe mender. And he had a big map on his wall where he cobbled and mended shoes. And he prayed for all of those nations of the world. And specifically, he prayed for once that was on his heart. Just a young man. And he went to a bunch of ministers. And he told them, I believe that God wants us to evangelize the world. And the senior minister said, sit down, young man. If God sees fit to do that, he'll do it without your help or mine. <laughs> but William Carey wouldn't sit down. The hand of God came upon him. And he went to India as a missionary. And for seven years he labored and he sweated and he toiled among the Hindus in India. And only after seven years did he win his first convert to Christ. Most people would have long since given up, but not William Carey. He won his first convert to Christ. Now, William Carey was good at languages. And he translated the New Testament into 40 different languages. One third of the population of the world he opened to the scriptures. And by the time he finished his life, by the time he did his life's work, he'd opened churches and colleges and orphanages and leprosy missions. He became known as the father of modern-day missions. Not bad for a young man mending shoes. But you see, when God touches the ordinary, it becomes extraordinary. D.L. Moody, he was a young clerk in a shoe store in a city in America. And a Sunday school teacher had a burden for him. And he walked past the store several times and saw him working away. And it took him a while, this Sunday school teacher, to plug up the courage to go in and to talk to him about his soul. But this day he watched, he watched till Moody went into the back store and he followed him in 
and he shared with young D.L. Moody the gospel. And right there and then, Moody became a believer, just a young man. He immediately tried to join a church, but he knew so little about the Bible that he refused his application to become a member. Can you believe that? A year later, they did. But that young boy, that shoe clerk, became probably the greatest evangelist that ever lived since the Apostle Paul. In the end, D.L. Moody preached to over 100 million people around the world. They said that his grammar was so bad that people would go just to laugh at his grammar. But God used him mightily as a great, great soul winner. And today there's Moody Bible Institute, there's Moody Church. His legacy goes on to this day. They get Moody books. It's just wonderful what God can do. William Seymour was a black preacher with sight in one eye. And he moved to a couple of different places in the States and eventually he came to California, to Los Angeles. And he had a passion for people, believers, to be filled with the Spirit and to speak in other tongues. That was his passion. Got him into a lot of trouble with different denominations, including his own at one time. But that passion was in him. And so he found a, a run-down old church in Azusa Street in Los Angeles. And he fixed it up. He started to preach. People got filled with the Spirit, began to speak in tongues, caused a massive stir in the city. And in the end, a thousand people were coming to that little building no bigger than the one you're sitting in. They couldn't get them in. And they started to run continuous meetings. In fact, they ran for three years, three times a day, seven days a week for three years. And people came from all over America, came from all over the world. And right there became what we believe was the birthplace of modern-day Pentecostal movement. Is this a street in Los Angeles from a one-eyed black preacher that God touched and the ordinary became extraordinary? And we're the fruit of a lot of that, by the way, and all over the world. First Corinthians chapter one. Verse twenty six. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty. Not many noble are called. Doesn't say not any, but not many. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. What mankind is foolish 
And God often counts as wise. What men count as weak, God counts as strong. What men count as insignificant, lowly, base, uninfluential, ignoble, God counts as worthy. What men despise, God loves. It's amazing what God can do with ordinary people whose lives are dedicated to him. Some time ago, some of you may remember that I did a series about the 12 men that Jesus chose regarding the apostles. And it was a box series, and at the back of it, I wrote this. And if I may read this to you, it's too much for me to memorize, so I'm going to read it. Is that all right? Jesus Christ was the greatest visionary who ever lived. His mission in this world was to save mankind. By any stretch of the imagination, that was a mammoth task. He eventually laid down his life for the cause. Having completed his mission, he would leave behind a message, his gospel, which has been impacting the lives of men, women, boys, and girls for over 2,000 years on every continent and nation on earth. The amazing thing is that all this was accomplished within three years, from his baptism at Jordan until his crucifixion at Calvary. And during that short period, he gathered around him many disciples. And from those many, he chose 12. These 12 hand-picked disciples would shape the history of Christianity and in turn shape human history for over 2,000 years. It's also incredible that of the 12 Jesus chose, none were scholars, none were rabbinically trained, none were orators or men of wealth or influence. At least four were fishermen. One was a tax collector for the Romans. One was a paramilitary zealot. And one would even be a traitor. Yet for all that, these 12 ordinary men had such an extraordinary encounter with Christ that they ended up turning their world upside down. Who were these 12 men? What were they like? Jesus said that they were dull of hearing, spiritually slow, and lacked faith. They acted carnally and fell asleep during prayer times. They were at times racially motivated, ambitious, even cowardly. And when Jesus needed them the most at his trial and crucifixion, they deserted him. If you had to pick a team to entrust your vision to, it would not be them. If you were to pick 12 men to carry on your mission when you had gone, none of these would have been your first choice. However, in spite of their shortcomings, their lapses, their blunders, their foul-ups, their failures, Christ, who knows the heart of all men, still chose these very ones to lay the foundation of Christianity for all men for all time. Scripture has more to say about some than others. Some are prominent, some are obscure. Some of these men were different in temperament and talent, different in personality and ability. In fact, they were just like you and me. The most notable thing about these men was their ordinariness. They were quite unexceptional, just plain vanilla, ordinary garden-type variety, just like you and me. But when the ordinary is touched by God, it becomes extraordinary. Amen. These are they, the critics said, that has turned the world upside down. Christ 
came into your life, you were no longer the same as what you once were. Perhaps you looked the same. Maybe there were some times you felt the same, but you weren't the same. All things had passed away. All things had become new. Now you think differently. You act differently. You behave differently. You walk differently. You talk differently. (laughs) The ordinary has become extraordinary. Now you're filled with God's Spirit. Now you have the Word of God hidden in your heart. Now you have God as your Father, Jesus as your elder brother, the Holy Spirit as your constant companion. If that doesn't make you extraordinary, I don't know what does. Do you know James McQuilkin, Jeremiah Manili, Robert Carlyle, and John Wallace were? Do you know who they were? You should. Because they turned this country upside down by their prayers. Four young, ordinary country men from Kells and County Antrim. And their minister said to them, you boys need to pray. And you need to pray for God to save souls. And they took it to heart. And the four of them started to pray for God to save souls and for a move of God's Spirit in their community. And after months and months and months and months of praying all through the winter, one soul came to Christ. Then another, then another, then another. And people started to join them in prayer. And for the first year, they, they don't take offense at this, girls. There's a reason for it. For the first year, they wouldn't let any girls come. These were all young men, single men. They said they didn't want the distraction of young girls coming. They were there for business to pray. They weren't there to date or to match make. They were there to pray. And for a whole year, they wouldn't let girls come. They ran it after a year because the women started to hold prayer meetings too. And in the end, there were so many people coming to pray that halls couldn't hold them. They would spill it into the streets to pray. Do you know there was a time in the town of Balamina and there was over a thousand people in Main Street, Balamina, praying because they couldn't get them into the churches? There was that many already praying in the churches? In 1859, revival began to sweep the nation. And in one year, a hundred thousand people came to Christ in one year. And it all began with four young men, ordinary young countrymen, and God touched them. And what God did through them was extraordinary. And it swept through this whole nation. By the way, Moira missed that revival. Remember years ago, going down to London Hall Library and looking up all the reports in the Belfast newsletter, because that's about 150 years old, wherever it is, and you can read the reports of the revival around the country. And I could not find one instance where Moira was touched by the revival. Brimhedge was, Lurgan was, Lisburn was, everywhere was, except Moira. 
And I often wonder, why was that? But you know maybe why that was? Because when John Wesley came here, the established church wouldn't let him in to preach in their church. He stood outside in a gravestone and preached. And when revival came, it was like a river can run a rock, it just diverted and went to Lurgan. Where people were falling in the streets, couldn't even get in the church door. They were so convicted by the Holy Spirit, they were falling in the streets and crying out unto God. Churches, extra churches were built because of revival to try to get the people in. And the 12th of July, 1859, there were thousands of people coming in trains and buses and cars and carts and every way to Ormo Park or, no, what do you call that place up there near the university? Botanic Gardens. 50,000 people met in Botanic Gardens. Can you imagine that? And there was meetings all over the place, all reporting, not about the Orange Order, not about anything to do with politics, all to do with the revival. Hallelujah. And there was kids at it. And, and, and sometimes there's up to hundreds of children and they would go underneath a tree uh, into the shade and somebody would lead them. And there was hundreds getting saved. There was not one arrest made. There was not one incident. When they were singing on the train, they were singing the songs of Zion. And it all started with four young men. Hallelujah. It's amazing what God can do, isn't it? Amy Carmichael from Malaya County Down from her own shores. Her father was a miller. And she decided that she would share the gospel with the, with the mill girls. The shawlies as they call them because they wore shawls. And she started to preach to them and won them to Christ. In the end there were so many coming she had to build a hall she called it the Welcome Hall. It was built in Belfast. There was 500 shawlies coming and getting saved. She went to hear Hudson Taylor, the great missionary. And when she heard Hudson Taylor, God put it upon her heart to become a missionary. Her health wasn't good. She tried a few places that didn't work out because of her health. But in the end, she went to India. And she stayed in India for 50 years until she died, and she never came home. She never came home in furlough. She had such a passion for the Indian people. In Donavur, which is way, way down to the tip of India, and what her passion was was for young girls who were used as temple prostitutes for the Hindus at that time. But the Indian government later, through her efforts, stamped that out. But in her day, that was what was happening being sold into that sometimes by their parents. And she had such a heart for these young women and young girls to rescue them, and she did. Got her into all kinds of trouble. But she was so passionate about it, and she was so part of the culture there and so wanted to be part of it. They said that, because she was really white like us, what she did was she'd put coffee on her skin to darken her skin, and she would dress an Indian dress just to be so part of that culture. And boy, they loved her. They absolutely loved Amy Carmichael. 1901, that's when she started. In 1912, Queen Mary helped the sponsor to give her some money to open up a hospital, <clears throat> which she did. She died in 1951 at the age of 83, having never come home. Her work 
to this day still goes on. Her work supports 500 people in 400 acres and 16 nurseries in a hospital. Not bad for a wee girl from Malaya, County Town. Just an ordinary young girl that God used in extraordinary ways because he touched her. Water is such an ordinary thing, isn't it? Such a plain thing, such a common thing. And yet Jesus turned that ordinary, plain, common thing into the richest, sweetest wine that the governor had ever tasted. This is why I want the Sunday school teachers to listen to this. Sunday school teachers, youth leaders and helpers, your job is of vital importance. It truly is. You have the opportunity for God to influence young lives for all eternity. Yes, I know. I, I know that some of them will become prodigals. I know that someone will turn away from God. I know that. But there's lots who won't. Amen. I, I think of our Sunday school teachers in here and think of these two sitting over here, Evelyn, Ethna. How many years did both of you put into Sunday school? 20 plus years each. 20 plus years each. Karen Turkington, she's away down the stair. Billy, how many years has Karen done this? More than that, maybe. More than that. More than that. She was one of the very, very first along with Evelyn. Evelyn, you must be more than that. You can't remember it so long, isn't it? <laughs> he served your time anyway. But you think, think of some of the ones who leading worship this morning, playing instruments, all the rest of it. You taught them. They sat under your ministry. Think of Rachel Laban today out there in Southern Africa in the Mercy Ships. Well, this is her second or third stint out in Africa. She's away for another year using the gifts and talents. I remember when she was a wee scrub running about in here. I had two daisies. Look at her today. I think of Hannah leading this morning. I think of Sarah down there who sings up here only she's having a new baby, her and Brian, so she can't be up here for a while. She runs the women's meetings. All, all these sat under your teaching in Sunday school. But look what God's done with them. Think of Clara out in the Philippines. She was a cheeky wee scrub too. <laughs> in here, like all the rest of them. The articles at times, weren't they? Tried your patience. But look at them today. Claire's out there 18 years. She's now 50 full-time Filipino workers. She's working in two different cities. Two children's recovery units. A children's home in two different cities. And her vision hasn't stopped. In fact, it's got bigger. She now has a vision for a children's village. She sent me photographs of land the other day way up the mountains. I says, you're going to need a ski lift to get up there, girl. She's been talking to the mayor of the city. He says, there is no land. She says, well, God has some land for us somewhere in this city. And she'll get it. And she wants to build a, a village, little houses for children and house parents to look after them until they get adopted. It's a big vision. It's going to cost a lot of money, a lot of effort, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. But she was in the Sunday school here. She was in the youth. 
So you youth leaders and you Sunday school teachers, God used you to touch the ordinary to do extraordinary things. So what about each and every one of us? Ordinary five-eighths. Nothing special. But yet when the hand of God touches our lives, we have an influence that we never had before. We have opportunities that we never had before. We'll touch people's lives that we never could before simply because God has touched us. It's not anything in us, it's Him through us that makes the difference. We're just water, but when He touches us, we become wine to bless other people. Amen? Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.